morning. Yeah? Good? I'm doing well. Finest frog's hair, right? That's pretty fine. So we're in this series, Our Risen Lord, Our Risen Savior. And two weeks ago, we talked about the character Barabbas in, the, in biblical history and how um, when, when Jesus was being presented before the people, uh, Pilate said, who do you want me to let go? It was, it was uh, um, tradition that they would let a prisoner free uh, during Passover and uh, the people wanted Barabbas released instead of Jesus. An insurrectionist, a murderer released, given his freedom. And an innocent man, Jesus Christ, condemned to die. And uh, we, we saw how Martin Luther coined the phrase, uh, the description of that as the great exchange. This great exchange, an innocent life for the guilty. And how we are the guilty. And, and how this great exchange has taken place on our behalf. And then last week we, we saw how uh, a good close friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus, uh, his sister sent word to Jesus that he was sick. And, and Lazarus ended up dying. And, and Jesus shows up on the scene four days later. And, and there's this struggle and this wrestling of where were you, Jesus? And if you'd have been here, you'd have been okay. You'd have healed him. He wouldn't have died. And, and ultimately, we saw last week how, how uh, Lazarus, in, in this particular moment in time, Lazarus needed to not only be dead, but for everyone to recognize that he was absolutely dead. Four days in, in a tomb. And, and, and what does Jesus do? He calls to Lazarus, and Lazarus comes to life. Jesus resurrects him, showing ultimately that he has all power over life and death. And, and so when, when the Bible says, and when Jesus says, I can give you life, we know it's true. He can give us life because he has that power. He has that control. And today, as we look at another situation of Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time, and for one of the few times that he ever did actually enter Jerusalem, we're going to see what he did on your behalf, ultimately, and on my behalf. Now, the only survivor of shipwreck was washed up on a small island, and, and he was desperate to be saved. He, he feverishly prayed for God to rescue him, and every day he cried out, and he scanned the horizon for help. But no one seemed forthcoming. Exhausted, he eventually managed to build a little hut out of some driftwood to protect him from the elements, and then he started storing a few possessions that washed up with him, and he began to live his life there. But then one day, after scavenging for food, he arrived back home to find out his hut completely engulfed in flames, smoke billowing in the air, and every last bit of what he owned was gone. He was stunned with grief and anger. God, how could you let this happen to me? He cried, and he eventually drifted off to sleep. Early the next day, however, he was awakened by what? The sound of a ship. A, a rescue boat was approaching the island and had come to rescue him. And he asked them, weary and tired, how did you find me? The rescuers replied, we saw your smoke signal. Of course. Now, Jesus' final days on earth were a lot like that little shipwrecked man. 
The disciples don't understand ultimately what's going on. They've been told, they know, but in the midst of those final seven days of the life of Jesus Christ, there's all kinds of confusion, all kinds of doubt, all kinds of wondering. Have we believed a lie? What's going on? Darkness and confusion they didn't understand. But we know, in the end, ultimately it would make sense to them. And I hope that today, after today's message, if there's been doubt in your mind, that, that what you hear today will make sense to you. That it will make sense to you. Um, on what we traditionally call Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And, and this last trip into Jerusalem would be a battle to the very end. Jesus was entering in with his team, the disciples, for a final stand. But a final stand that would be anything from fair, of course. We know that, that in those last few days of Jesus' life, there was a lot of lying and cheating and bribery. And ultimately, it would end in death, the death of an innocent man. So I want us, I want us all to turn in our Bibles to chapter uh, 21 of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't own one, look under the seat in front of you. There should be a, a Bible there. You can find Matthew chapter 21 on page 977 of the Bibles that are under the seats. 977. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. As we look at Jesus entering into Jerusalem and how God was working in the midst of that. Now I've also included in your notes, if you look up at the top of that note sheet page and you see the passages there. Um, this account of Jesus entering into Jerusalem is in every gospel. It was an important event. Every gospel writer talks about this. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go through the message. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me, please. As, you, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now today we're going to look at four ways in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem that Sunday before his crucifixion. But before we get to the first point, I want to take a small poll. Um, look at the, the beginning of that passage in all of your Bibles and tell me what the caption has been given by the translators. What does it say? The triumphal entry. Is there anything other than the triumphal entry? Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Okay, that's, that's, that's closer than the triumphal entry. Something that we all need to know 
if you're new to studying the Bible, is that those captions at the beginning of every passage in your Bible, those are not God-inspired. Those were added to sort of give us an idea of the main gist of that passage. So just keep that in mind as you're, as you're thinking and reading your Bible. Um, those captions were not in the original Greek. Uh, now, I don't think, honestly, there was anything triumphal about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. As I look at the details, and I think about him going in there, kingly, yes, in some ways, that, that caption actually captures that. Royal, yes, absolutely. Triumphal, yeah, I just don't see it. But, but what I do see is humility. I see Jesus entering Jerusalem humbly. Now, when you think triumphantly, at least as I think of triumphantly, I think of, you know, celebrating at the end of the finish line or, or standing over the top of your foe and saying, yeah, I took you out. But Jesus enters Jerusalem humbly. And I mean, the scene in Jerusalem that day must have been crazy. Passover was an enormous celebration. In fact, the historian Josephus wrote that between two to three million people came to Jerusalem during Passover. Now, I'm guessing that it was difficult estimating the number of people that came to Jerusalem. You know, maybe something akin to estimating the number of people that, say, attended the inauguration. Um, or maybe estimating the number of people that are going to come to Wyoming to view the eclipse in August. You know, um, how would they estimate the number of people that were in Jerusalem? So two to three million may be high. There's another author, E.P. Sanders, in his book, Judaism, Practice, and Belief, using various means of estimates, and I don't know how you would even do this, he estimated that there were between 300 to 500,000 people who came into Jerusalem during the Passover. So I'm going to go with that, the 300 to 500,000 people. Regardless, it's a whole bunch of people, Right? Did, I mean, have you heard some of the estimates about the eclipse? Really? I mean, I, it's kind of exciting to me. But sort of like, what if all those people do show up? Right? They're going to need gas. They're going to need food. And they're going to need to go to the bathroom. Is there enough toilet paper in our county right now? You should be stocking up. Prices could go high. Instead of... Lemonade stands will have toilet paper stands out in front of the house. <laughs> I, I don't know. But regardless, there is a lot of people here. And, and here's something that all of those people are coming to Jerusalem to do. Sacrifice a lamb. They're all coming to Jerusalem to sacrifice, to remember, to celebrate Passover. Which, which they remember, and you should remember or know, that, that that's celebrating the event of God saving them, Israel, from Egypt. And they're remembering this, that they are to sacrifice a lamb. And they would generally do this in groups of ten. You know, a family of ten, or maybe, maybe two or three families might get together. So, so imagine... 30 to 50,000 lambs being sacrificed in Jerusalem. I mean, yeah, right? The, the blood that was flowing during Passover, the slaughter that was occurring. And what is that 
in, in God and all of His sovereignty, what is that sacrifice foreshadowing? Jesus' sacrifice. For hundreds of years, they've been remembering something that God did in the past that's pointing to something He's going to do in the future. And for them, right now, the future is here. It was happening this week. Little do they know what exactly is happening. A large national festival. Lots of people. But as far as Jesus entering triumphantly, I don't think it's there. Nothing along the lines of a triumphal fanfare is mentioned. Yes, there's lots of shouting and laying down of, of blankets, but that was something that they normally did. That wasn't something that they just spur of the moment did only for Jesus. They've done it for other people, kings, dignitaries, but, but there was no organized parade, no lights, no show of power, no white stallion, no legions of soldiers, no trophies of war, no captives, just Jesus riding a couple animals and his disciples entering into Jerusalem, what Jesus knew was going to be for the last time. Now, all four Gospels record this, and if you read all four accounts, you will notice there's differences in each four accounts. And some people like to point to that and, see, and say, see the Bible, it contradicts itself. These, these facts, they're all different. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay, first of all, Jesus is God. Born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, is the one true God who conquers our enemies of sin and death. And he's coming one day to judge the world. Same story. Same story. But Jesus' ministry was filled with so many details and so many events and, and so much information that there's no possible way that it could all be recorded for us to read every little bit. Think of your own life. Think of the pictures that you have in a photo album. Do they, do they detail every event and every occurrence that you've ever done in your life? What do they detail? Look at, compare your pictures with somebody else in the family of the same event. Different, right? Different focuses. They, they care about different people in that group. Well, here's, here's the deal with, with the Gospels. Matthew, when he wrote his Gospel, is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Those, that's the group that he's writing to. They want to know how all of this that's happening corresponds to the Old Testament. And are all the promises that God made in the first five books of the Old Testament, are, are they, is Jesus' ministry fulfilling them? The prophets, the prophecies, are they being fulfilled? Highly important to Jewish people. And, and Matthew is telling them, he's giving them different snapshots and highlights of those very things for this predominantly Jewish audience. Mark writes his gospel to a predominantly Roman audience. Well, the Romans don't really care about national ancestry as far as it comes with the heritage of, of Jesus as being a Jew. They are a multiracial nation, very similar to our own. They don't care what your family history is. All they care is, that did you get the job done? And if you look at the genealogy there, you see that... Actually, does Mark have a genealogy in it? Tell me. 
Somebody, are you open to the, it doesn't? Okay, I almost said something wrong. Of course, he doesn't have that there. No genealogy in Mark. In Mark. It says right there, there's no genealogy in Mark. Mark is a short gospel. There are lots of, of, of transition words in the book of Mark, like suddenly, and then, lots of action, lots of get her done kind of stuff. It's filled with present tense verbs. Jesus did this. Jesus did this. And it's a lot about Jesus, his miracles, his work. And, it, and, and the point is, yeah, Jesus got it done. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. It's all done. In fact, what were the last words of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. It's finished. Luke, on the other hand, is writing to Gentiles. People that are not necessarily Jewish in background, so they're not as interested with all of the pedigree of Jesus and his Jewish lineage. This is what I was thinking of just before when I was talking about Mark. If you look at the genealogy that's in Luke, you see that there are actually Gentiles listed there. Important for Gentiles to see that Jesus wasn't just solely Jewish, there was Gentile lineage in his life as he died for all. And Luke takes us back to Adam and shows that Jesus is a man. He is God, but he's also a perfect man. John, John primarily wrote to a Greek audience, which is steeped in philosophy as a people group. And he makes this very clear. He makes this very clear argument to the Greeks that Jesus is the one true God and that eternal life is to be found solely by faith in him. So just as Jesus entered Jerusalem humbly, and as we see the Gospel writers wrote humbly to various groups of people, we too can enter humbly into the lives of our neighbors and our family, and we can live faithfully as followers of Jesus Christ, and we can love them in the same way that he loved us. We don't have to enter into their life in a grand fashion in a powerful, I'm right and you're so wrong type of, of, of message. But one that honestly is tailored to the people that we are surrounded with on a daily basis. Not changing the details of the gospel, changing the approach of how we reach those that we know and those that we love. Now coming to us righteously, having salvation, and gently, you know, um, Matthew draws, the gospel writers record that, that by divine foreknowledge that there was a prophecy about this cult. Matthew ties it directly to Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which mentions the cult and its mother. And it's possible that Christ rode the donkey for the difficult part of the journey and he rode the colt for an easier period of time. I, I don't know what the scripture tells us about that. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. That not happened. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And unfortunately, the people on the day and leading up to the day when Jesus actually did enter Jerusalem are seeing the words king and not seeing the words 
salvation and gently. For in their minds, Jesus is coming to save them from the oppression of the Romans, to free them as God did when they were in bondage to the Egyptians. But Jesus comes humbly. Now, think about in your own personal life, interactions that maybe you have had with Jesus. In prayer, in conversation. You know, what, what sort of thoughts or feelings have you had? You know, Jesus says this. He said, I didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to what? To save it. To save it as a servant. He washed the disciples' feet before the Last Supper. He loves each one of us in this room specifically, so specifically that he knows how many hairs are on your head. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he intimately knows you. And we need to make sure that we're not simply thinking that Jesus needs to get us out of the real life situations that we're in today and that's the only reason why we care that he cares for us. He came not to serve. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to put his life in place of ours. Not with great fanfare. Not with a grand show of power, but a show of servant. He didn't come to seek prominence or take a position of power. He didn't even come to free the Jews from the oppressions of the Romans. No, he came to be their savior. He came to be our savior. And he, did, he came humbly. So Jesus entered into Jerusalem on, on his entry into Jerusalem on that day was not a triumphal one, in my opinion but it was definitely a royal one. So the second way that Jesus entered Jerusalem was messianically. Messianically. Jesus didn't want there to be any mistake about it. He, he was claiming to be a king, and he was claiming to be the Messiah, and he was. By the end of the first century, the glory of Israel was completely gone. The glory of Israel had been gone for a long time, and they knew that someday the Messiah would come. They were told this. They were promised this. Prophecies of old spoke about this truth. They said that when the Son of David returns, it would all be set right. But through the years, as I said earlier, this people looked more military than spiritual. It's a very moving thing in the New Testament to see how the, that phrase, Son of David, was used. Because Son of David means Messiah. The coming one. Matthew 9, 27. We see it this way. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, Son of David! Our Messiah, have mercy on us. They called out with great hope. They called out with great faith. And they called out to Jesus as Messiah. Our hope is in the Messiah. 
Verse 28 goes on. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Jesus said, Yes, Lord, they replied. We see this title used again in Matthew 15, 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, came to Jesus crying out, Lord, Son of David, King, Messiah, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Mark 10, 46-52, when they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on wasn't crying out to anybody else. He knew Jesus was special. He knew Jesus could help him. I doubt he hollered at anybody else as they walked by. Jesus, Son of David, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It goes on in Mark chapter 10, verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Could you imagine? You, actually, you call on Jesus and he actually says, I mean, this guy's a rock star, right? Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith is healed. And as Mark does, loves these words, immediately. He received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You see, we have great hope when we give our life and everything in it to Jesus. It may look different than we think it should. Just as it did for the people in Jerusalem that day who thought they understood what Jesus was doing and what he was going to do. My hope is that when, when he responds differently in your life and his mind than we want him to, or that we hope that he will, that we aren't disappointed, and that we give up on him like the people in Jerusalem did, to where we curse his name and, and call out, crucify him. Instead of, Jesus, I don't understand what's happening, but I'm going to trust you. Help me. Help me to trust you. Maybe you get discouraged and want to give up. Whatever it is in life, don't get discouraged. Cry out to Jesus. I know lots of people that are in physical <coughs> People that can't even be here on a Sunday morning because of the pain that's in their life. What are they to do? Number one, cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. When we are afraid or anxious, what do we do? Cry out to Jesus. When we're in awe of what we see around us, what do we do? Cry out to Jesus. We worship. Good, bad, indifferent, our first response should always be to cry out to Jesus. Jesus' royal entry is of vital significance in understanding his messianic mission. Up until now, Jesus was careful never to go into Jerusalem. In fact, he didn't want anybody announcing that he was the Messiah. If you recall, he would shut demons up. Don't say anything about who I am, but they understood who he was. 
He didn't come into Jerusalem because he didn't want to further the, the, the conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. But now, on this day, the time had come. It was time. The opponents of Jesus understood the strong messianic implications of the manner of his entry in Jerusalem, and they didn't like it at all. In fact, when they're plotting to kill Jesus, they say something that just blows me away. They say, we have got to kill him, or else people will believe him. People will believe in him. <sighs> he came riding up on a donkey into Jerusalem, which was a kingly thing to do, but because it was a donkey and not a horse, it meant that he came in peace, not as a military conqueror. The garments and palm branches being laid before him in the road and the shouts of those who were traveling with him. And likely the shouts of those who joined in later. Have you ever get, been caught up in, in, a, in a crowd before? We were eating at a Mexican restaurant a couple weekends ago, and, and they were singing happy birthday to this table. How can you not join in, right? I didn't have any idea who the person was. It's like, happy birthday, blah, blah, blah. You just, I'm sure there were lots of people that just got caught up in the moment in Jerusalem and were crying out. But all of this that was happening was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. Prophecies would have been coming to the minds of the people who watched and heard. I wonder. To us today, we might call it something like deja vu. Maybe has this happened to you before? But to them, where they're focusing on these prophecies that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation, this is going to happen. A Savior is coming. This is important. And these things start happening. And you begin to think to yourself, could this be the day? Are we going to see that this is real? And it was as real as they were standing there. And then, and then, of course, the religious leaders tell Jesus, quiet the people. They're just getting too carried away. What does, what's Jesus' response to that? In Luke 19.40, I love it. Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will, shock, will cry out. But most of the people wanted an earthly king who would free them from the bondage of the Romans. That's our, oftentimes, that's our, our go-to place as human beings. We want relief of pain, we want relief of struggle, we want life to be easier, and we sort of put our eternity and salvation secondary under that, and we've got it mixed up. The most important thing that could ever happen to you, and could ever happen to me, is that we were adopted into the, to the family, into the kingdom of God, as His child. Number one, it's a matter how we're doing outside of that. That is number one, but we often get that mixed up. So Jesus intentionally and purposefully enters into Jerusalem and he declares that he wasn't going to be a, a human leader. But he was most definitely, it was most definitely a statement. And so the, the religious leaders demand crucifixion. In fact, they manipulate the system so that it actually happens. And on one side of that, I think, how could you not see this as Jesus, the Messiah? And on the other side of that, I think, if not for them, he's not crucified, which is important for us. God had it all worked out. Now, have you ever found yourself responding to Jesus in the same way? I already said this, but I think it needs repeating. 
Do you have your ideas and feelings about what Jesus should do for you and how he should be, what he should be like in your life? Or who he should be? It's, and it's easy for us to be critical of the people in Jerusalem. Right? Oh, right, those dumb Jews. How could they wander in the desert for 40 years? How could they not trust God? But then we live our selfish lives and we think of only ourselves and we don't prioritize Jesus and then we think, oh, maybe I'm just like those Jews. It becomes all about me. And, and then I, I, I project that attitude and, that, and I place those expectations on Jesus. I mean, we work hard, right? We work hard to... To clean the house, to take out the trash, to wash the windows, to do, to, the, to do the laundry. All in attempt to somehow impress Jesus like Martha was doing. Or to earn the Father's love, failing to simply recognize that we just have to submit. We can't earn it. We can't make Him love us any more than He already did. And instead of moving our lives in line with Him... We try to manipulate him to get him to move into line with us. But rest assured, Jesus won't be pressured into doing what we want him to do. He's going to do what he wants to do. And that's what he did on Palm Sunday. He will continue to do what's best for us. You see, if he'd have given in to the people's demands, he'd have been their, their human leader. And then where would that have left them? Where would that have left us? No, he did what was best. And that was to die for you and for me. Which brings us to the third way Jesus entered Jerusalem. And that was as a sacrificial lamb. And out of all of the, the, the symbolic, sovereign things that God did, this is the one that gets me the most. On the tenth day of the first month of the year, five days before Passover, every family was required to choose a lamb for Passover as God had instructed Moses in Exodus chapter 12. Okay? Now the principal livestock in Bethlehem, which is a little sort of bedroom community near Jerusalem, was what? Was sheep. In fact, historians say, uh, Josephus says, that during the first century, it was only the sheep that were raised in Bethlehem that could actually qualify to be sacrificed in Jerusalem on Passover. So the Sadducees sort of had this racket going. And I don't know if that's one of the things that Jesus was pinning them down when he was overturning tables in the, in the temple. But, but this was happening. The sheep that were raised in Bethlehem to be the sacrificial lambs were then taken um, to the northeast gate of the city of Jerusalem by the pool of Bethsaida, which was called, logically, the Sheep Gate. This is the setting for Lamb Selection Day. Palm Sunday. And it is the day that the one born as the Lamb of God, where? In Bethlehem. Travels the road, enters where? Through the sheep gate. And people start crying out, Hosanna. In a sense, selecting him as their sacrifice on Lamb Selection Day, who would then five days later be crucified. 
I just gives me total goosebumps when I think about how God seriously hundreds of years before when God what, what, what God had the Israelites do to be saved from, from the angel of death as it, it came over Egypt the blood of what? the lamb the beginning of what? the Passover celebration which what? pointed to Jesus coming and then he does come exactly the way that God planned it. Jesus entered as a sacrificial lamb. So he came humbly, he came messianically, he came as a sacrificial lamb, and finally he entered compassionately for you and for me. I mean, who of us doesn't want compassion, right? We yearn for it from others. We screw up. What do we, what do we crave from from people that we've hurt, either intentionally or carelessly. Forgiveness, compassion. Jesus entered compassionately. Luke records this observation in Luke 19.41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he what? He wept over it. And as we saw last week, when Jesus wept over the death of Nazareth, this isn't just shedding a few tears like... We might when we scrape our knee. This was grief in its greatest physical form. He began to weep. He's sitting on this donkey. They stop and he begins to weep. Jesus had such compassion on them. He wanted to alleviate their suffering. Maybe, maybe he was weeping and he was sensing the fact that many of those people were going to be lost. And they weren't going to believe. But we for sure know that he wept. Because in the immediate future of Jerusalem, there was going to be great suffering and destruction. Because you see, he, he came as their Savior, but not as their human king conqueror and it continues in Luke chapter 19 verse 42 if you even know if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you oh he says if the people would only understand what love and compassion us. He has an incredible love for you and for me. Jesus wept not only on that day on the road to Jerusalem, but I wonder if he doesn't weep every day. Every day that there's men and women who don't understand and recognize the hope that they can have in surrendering their life to Jesus Christ as their Savior. He weeps for the lost. He weeps when we don't recognize Him as Savior and put our faith in Him. He weeps when we do things on our own and when, when we live life our own way. Have you not weeped over your own children when they have made decisions that just baffle you and you think if you, 
you would just if you would just live life the way that we taught you. Jesus loves us more than any of us could ever love our own, our own children. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you, you haven't understood. Maybe you haven't surrendered to that. You've sort of had your own idea of what salvation is or what Jesus should be to you. And you're just sort of living your life in that way. And maybe today would be the first day that you actually surrender it all. Say, God, I'm done. But maybe you're thinking, well, but I don't understand all that, that there is to that. Do you need to? Will any of us ever? I'm going to stand on the stage with, with a couple this Saturday, and they're going to commit their lives to each other. They're going to covenant to one another. And I guarantee you, neither that future husband and that future wife have any idea what they're about to experience for the next so many decades of their life. None. Well, maybe a little. <laughs> I see some heads shaking. No. Right? But that didn't stop us from standing on a stage saying, I give my all to you. I surrender everything that I am to you. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, bring it on. I choose you. And when we do that with Jesus Christ, it's the same thing. Do we fall on our face as husbands and wives? Oh, absolutely we do. Mostly husbands. Um, <laughs> But we learn as we go. And, and, and this marriage relationship, this mirror into our life that we live with on a full-time basis helps us to be transformed into something that God wants us to be. Somebody that's holy. Somebody that's sacrificial. Somebody that loves unconditionally. And that's exactly what happens when we stand before an all-righteous, holy God and say, I surrender my life to you. I'm submitting it to you, trusting that over the next however many years of life you give me, that I'm going to understand more and more what it means to be your child. And I'm going to sometimes wrestle that away from you, and I thank you that you are compassionate and patient and humble with me. What a blessing. What a great exchange. You see, Jesus came not as a symbol, but to actually take action, to change the course of history, to change the universe. It's different today because of what he did. And today, I hope, is the beginning of, of a week of, of, of just meditation and thinking on that great exchange, what Jesus did as we reflect, as we surrender, maybe for the first time, as we worship, as we, as we remember with communion on Thursday night, as we get up with the sun on Sunday morning, and as those first disciples did when they got word that the tomb was empty. And then together in EWC, as we glorify and we celebrate together our risen Savior. Let's pray as the worship team comes up to close us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are such a great God that even in the details of human history, you worked this out. You, you know that, that, that we learn by, by seeing, by illustration. Jesus, you, you gave us so many parables and illustrations. And, and the disciples we see as they wrote the Gospels in different ways for different groups of people. And, and Jesus, as you entered Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, to be our Passover Lamb. Thank you. Thank you. And may each one of our hearts understand more and more. As we do, 
get more and more on our knees in worship, in celebration. And oh, Father, I pray that as we go through our week, that, that we would that we would see people that aren't experiencing this peace, that, that don't have this hope of eternity. Maybe they have all the money in the world and the greatest job, but, but in our heart of hearts, we know that, that they don't know you. Lord, give us the courage to step out and invite them to Easter service, to invite them to the series after, after the Easter service. Lord, use us as the body of Christ to proclaim the good news of the gospel. In our circles of influence. And Lord, now as we take up our morning offering and as give back, as we tithe what you have given us, pray that you would draw our hearts in, draw our minds in. May we live for you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. And also, if you marked anything on a connect card, put that in the offering plate as well. I'll be at the information counter for, for books and questions after this next Thank you.